We are in Romans chapter 7 today. Romans chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 tells us God joins believers to Christ so that their lives bear fruit for Him. God joins believers to Christ so that their lives bear fruit for Him. We live in a time where there are more resources than ever to help us be fruitful and to be productive, and yet many people feel unfruitful and even useless. They don't see how their life makes a difference. One recent study found that only 7% of workers feel productive during work hours. 10% of people say they feel sad all the time. 6% feel hopeless. 5% feel worthless. And we find a curious phrase in Romans chapter 7, verse 6. It is a crucial bearing wall in the Christian life, and it says that believers in Jesus serve in the new way of the Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit. They, they serve in the new way of the Spirit. And this phrase caps off a chain of events that God sets in motion to accomplish His plans. And in this phrase, we find the key to fruitfulness. So if this is you today and you maybe feel worthless or hopeless or fruitless, this is for you. I want you to stand with me if you're able. I'm going to read Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new way of the Spirit. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that by your Spirit, through your word, you, you change us. You, you remake our hearts even, Lord. And I pray that today that you would have your way in our hearts, in our homes, in this assembly, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat, please. Romans 7 is complex. It says the law 
leads to more sin. It deals with the relationship between the law and sin. From chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 20, we basically saw that whoever has the law are sinners. In chapter 6, the first 14 verses, Paul rejects the false conclusion that his critics drew from his teaching on the law. That God's grace triumphing over sin does not give permission to continue in a life of sin to get more grace. At the end of chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, Paul then rejects the idea that believers can keep on sinning as a lifestyle because, well, they're not under the law. And so he's, he's taking this now a step further in these first six verses in Romans 7, and he is saying this, that sin rules over those who are under the law. It says the law belongs to the old age, and to belong to the new, you must be released from the power of the law. And so Paul proclaims that release and explains the consequences. The context here is sanctification of those justified in Christ. God working in our lives despite our sin to conform us to Christ. And we see in these six verses how God brings about a chain of events, a chain of three events to accomplish his purposes. The first event is you have died to the law. We've died to what held us captive. You see that in verses one through four. And then you see, so that, it's a chain of events. You've died to the law so that, number two, you belong to Christ. We now belong to another, verse 4, Christ, him who has been raised from the dead. We've died to the law, we belong to Christ, so that we can now serve God. We now bear fruit for God. You see that at the end of verse 4 through verse 6. We're going to see what it means to serve God in the new way of the Spirit. Let's look at that first event. We'll look at it in verses 1 through 4. We have died to what held us captive. We have died to the law. This is a declaration. This is a declaration of truth. This is a declaration of reality in a believer's life. In verse 1, he says, Don't you know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law. He's speaking to people that, that know that the law is binding on a person only as long as they live. Paul is referring to a well-known saying in his day, if a person is dead, he is free from the Torah and the fulfilling of the commandments. Now that's pretty obvious. If you're dead, you can't do it. The law in chapter 7 here is referring to the Mosaic law. Not the law in general, not the law of the Romans, but the law of Moses. And the reason why we know that is true is because the context of Romans so far speaks of Moses' law, that which provokes sin. You see from chapters 2 all the way to chapter 5, and, and it culminates with this, chapter 5, verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass, a law that believers are no longer under, chapter 6 tells us. The context is pointing to the law of Moses. It refers to the 10th command in verse 7 of chapter 7. 
In verse 11 of chapter 7, it affirms that the law is holy and that God's commands are good. In fact, we're going to see that next time, how God's law is holy and his commands are good. Paul quotes the Old Testament more in Romans than any other letter. He assumes his readers know the Mosaic law. Uh, Gentile believers would have been well-schooled in the law. And so the, verse 1 basically just tells us the law rules over a person while they're alive. Obvious point. Verses 2 and 3 now illustrate that idea by showing a wife's responsibility to stay married to her husband while he lives. So only if he dies is she free from the law of marriage. It's, it's a general illustration. This is all this is. A general illustration. It's not about divorce and remarriage. This is not where we get our primary teaching on divorce and remarriage. Verse 2 tells us, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Now that coincides with where we do get a lot of teaching from on divorce and remarriage. Just as an aside here, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. If her husband is dead, at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. But here he's just making a general observation to make a point. So verse 3, he says, she's going to be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. Now, I don't know about you, but to a lot of people, that's a shocking thing to read in the Bible about adultery. We live in a relativistic age where adultery doesn't shock us as much as it once did. The seventh commandment has largely been taken out of the vocabulary. And many think that it is okay as long as it's consensual. Verse 3 says, If her husband dies, and she's free from the law, if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And what Paul is doing, he's given this argument that here is how the rule of law and sin are alike. This marriage illustration would have been obvious to anyone familiar with Israel's history. Israel's life under the law did not bring about righteousness. They sinned repeatedly, they sinned grievously, and they ended up in exile because of their sin. The law spelled death, not life for them. And the promise to Israel is, is a reality now for believers in Christ. We are united to the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We have died to the power of the law. We have the promised Holy Spirit. And so we can do what Israel was called to do, but could not do, which is bear fruit for God. We can serve God the way they did not. You get to verses 4 through 6, and Paul now is drawing the application from his illustration. Believers have died through the law, through the death of Christ. They are freed from it and are now literally joined or united to Jesus Christ. Because God's purpose, if you're a believer, God's purpose in joining you to Christ is to produce good fruit in your life. And so verse 4 begins, likewise, just therefore, literally therefore, here is the logical application of Paul's illustration. He says, my brothers, you 
also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Believers died to the law. Uh, They're released from its lordship. And they have died. He's, He's basically stating a fact. Literally, you have become dead to something. Now, the Greek wording here emphasizes two things. One that's obvious, the other maybe not so obvious. The first is this. He's pointing out that the death happened at a point in time. You have died. It happened at a point in time where you were set free from the penalty and power of sin totally and eternally. At the moment of conversion, at the moment of coming to faith in Christ, you you were no longer dead in sin. You became dead to sin. You've died. Spiritually speaking, you died to what brought you death. But the second thing it points out is this. You didn't choose to die. You didn't wake up one day and said, I am going to choose to die to sin. I know I'm dead in sin, but I'm going to now choose to die to it. You did not initiate the death. It literally reads like this in the Greek. You were made to die. God did it. God did it. And he did it through the body of Christ. What that means is that he did it with Christ as the sinner's substitute. He suffered the penalty of death that the law demanded. So it is through faith in Christ, is the way we would put it. It is through faith in Christ that God makes the believer eternally dead to condemnation and penalty of the law. He makes you eternally alive to him and dead to condemnation and the penalty of the law. This is why we read in Romans 8, 1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It is the heart of the gospel message. There is a holy God that requires, that demands holiness. And we are sinful, and we cannot attain that holiness. And so a loving Savior substituted himself in our place at the cross died for our sins, was buried, was risen on the third day, and has promised to return with blessing towards, for those who believe and judgment for those who will not. So you can have eternal life. We who were eternally dead can now be eternally alive in Christ. This is the idea behind Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In a believer's life, he broke the power of sin for all who died with Christ. God's grace in Christ ends the dominion of sin in your life as a believer, and you are given new life. You were dead in your sins. You were dead in your trespasses. God made you alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2. We know this to be true. And whoever gives themselves to sin will have sin as their master. And they will prove that they were not delivered from sin to begin with. They will have eternal death. And we see, and we saw this early in Romans, the Old Testament promises are fulfilled in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. 
and believers are transferred from one arena of lordship to another. Out of the arena of the lordship of sin and death in your life to the lordship of, the, of Jesus Christ. Now you can be obedient from the heart to your new Lord, Jesus, and obey his word. And it is all because you've died to the law. We have died to what held us captive, verses one through four. So that, there's a so that here. It is a, a, a string of events. It is a, it is a, a process here, and it, we've died to the law so that, secondly, we now belong to another. Verse four, we belong to Christ who's been raised from the dead. We belong to Jesus Christ. And it means more than you think, okay? To belong to Jesus means more than we think. Verse four says, we died to the law through the body of Christ so that we may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Now I want you to go back to verse three and I want you to see that phrase, if she marries another. Okay, see that phrase, if she marries another. Now in verse four, there is the phrase, belong to another. So you've got in verse three, she marries another. Verse four, belong to another. Those are parallel Greek phrases. Okay, the same wording. They're figures of speech for Mary. So the believer who's belonging to Christ, who's joined to Christ, who is united with Christ, is literally, spiritually married to Jesus. Married to Jesus. So belong to another literally means to be married to another. You were married to sin, and now you're married to Christ. The widow, in Paul's analogy here, verses 2 and 3, was free to remarry, and now the believer is free from the law that condemned and can now be remarried spiritually to a good Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So belonging to Christ literally means you are married spiritually to him. We've died to that which held us captive. We have died to the law so that we now belong to another, Christ raised from the dead. We belong to Christ. So that the third event that now we bear fruit for God. End of verse four through verse six. We can now serve God. The only people who can serve God in this way, who can truly serve God, are those who have the Holy Spirit. Only those who have died with Christ to the law and have the Holy Spirit can bear fruit for God, and verse six tells us that we serve now in the new life of the Spirit, in the new way of the Spirit. Believers have the Holy Spirit. Verse four tells us you died to the law through the body of Christ so that you belong to another, to Christ, so that you may bear fruit for God. I'll take you back to chapter six, verse 22. Speaking of freedom from sin and slavery to God, uh, that brings permanent fruit. There's a lot of uh, talk about fruit in uh, chapter 6, and it 
also goes into chapter seven here. And, and the fruit, the permanent fruit that you have leads to sanctification and leads to eternal life. But verse five takes you back in your past, okay, before you were a believer, and says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. You couldn't bear fruit for God then. You were controlled by your sinful nature. The, the Greek word is sarx. It literally means flesh. It's the sinful nature. It's a, it's a metaphor for the sinful tendencies governing people apart from Christ. The sinful passions that led to a lifestyle of sin. Because in an unbeliever's life, the law does not produce righteousness. It produces condemnation. Sinful passions were even encouraged through the law. Death is theirs for doing evil. In fact, also in chapter 6, in verse 21, the question, what fruit did you have when, when you were enslaved to sin? It's in the imperfect tense. The, the question being asked is, what fruit were you continuing to get during your service of sin? Because the law without the spirit produces sin, and the end is death. And that's why we're glad we can get to verse 6 that contrasts with verse 5. Look at verse 6. Now. So now it's in the present tense of a believer's life. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. We were operating under the law that held us captive. Now, as a believer, you operate under a, a new end times reality that Jesus inaugurated, that Jesus introduced, and it's the idea that believers were released from the power of the law. They died to its power over their lives. They have been delivered they have been discharged from what held them down and suppressed them. And in the life of a believer, if you're a Christian, what you know happened is that God broke into your life. God, God surprised you by grace. God gave you salvation, and it breaks in to override sinful passions and desires. So when we say Jesus saves, we mean that. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, You were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with Christ. And verse 14, it says that we, we have been forgiven all of our trespasses. And it says that the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands is canceled and that God set it aside, nailing it to the cross, where the sin was paid for, where the substitution happened. That brings you to the so that in verse 6. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. What's the new way of the Spirit? What does that mean? It's helpful if you read it this way. The new life of or from the Spirit. The new life because of the Spirit. God brings it about. God brought about your death 
Through sin and the law, God brings about your life in Christ. It fulfills the old covenant promise that the new covenant would give people the ability to keep the law. If you're a believer, you can actually now obey God because you have the Holy Spirit living in you. You couldn't before that. It's not possible. Verse six says, not in the old way, not in the obsolete way of the written code and the record of debts and decrees against you. No longer under the letter of the law that produced disobedience. And he's contrasting the old and the new. He's contrasting the old covenant and the new covenant. He's speaking of newness that has its origin in the spirit of God. He's speaking of oldness originating from the letter without the spirit of God. The law demanded an obedience that you you couldn't give. And the obedience that was demanded in the law, you couldn't get the power to do it from the law. The new way of the spirit I would define that as a spirit-empowered life of bearing fruit for God. It goes goes with Romans 6, verse 4, walking in newness of life when you're in Christ. The new way of the spirit. It's a spirit-empowered new life of bearing fruit for God and walking in newness of life. And it's brought about by the spirit of God. You see this in verse 6, the Spirit. This is indicating a fulfillment of salvation history. The promises of the new covenant are now a reality in the life of every believer. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31, the promise of the new covenant, verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, beginning at verse 31. God says, behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is God's gospel promise under the new covenant. This is the promise of Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to put a a new spirit within them. This is the promise of Ezekiel 36, 26. A new heart I will give you. A new spirit I will put within you. Within those that sin and law held captive, controlled us, possessed us, occupied us, clung to us, and now a believer can say, I serve God in the new way of the Spirit. We served sin before. I think a lot of believers think, well, you know, I was a slave to sin. Now that I serve God, and they kind of make a leap, and it's like, I'm now an independent contractor, and I can just do whatever I want 
as long as I stay somewhat within the bounds. I tell people all the time, love Jesus and do as you please. Because if you love Jesus the most, you will be doing what pleases him. But we serve, it's the same way, it's just the exact opposite, okay? We serve God as a slave of God. Once, uh, under his will, under his word, we are bound, we are, we are controlled. Now, we're not puppets, but we are led by God. All that are led by the Spirit of God belong to God. But we are, we are as Ephesians 4, 1 says, we are prisoners of the Lord. We are chained to Christ forever. It's, it's a beautiful freedom, okay? Our hearts have, have been taken captive. Our hearts, our souls are captured by Christ. And so now we bear fruit for God. Now we can serve God in the new way of the Spirit, from the Spirit, because of the Spirit. I'll put it this way. Bearing fruit for God is what it means to serve in the new way of the Spirit. Those are parallel terms in this passage. Bearing fruit for God is what it means to serve in the new way of the Spirit. Now you say that to a group of Christians and there many are going to say, I don't feel fruitful. How can I bear fruit for God? I don't even know if I am bearing fruit for God. And, and a lot of people feel unsuccessful in the Christian life and defeated because oftentimes they feel unsuccessful in regular life and it's just par for the course in general and it, it just kind of comes into their Christian life too. A thousand Americans were asked, what would make you feel successful? A thousand Americans. I'm sure there were some believers in the mix. What would make you feel successful? 87% said the ability to take vacations whenever I want. 53% said if I could hire a housekeeper, I would feel successful. 40% said if I had a financial advisor. 39% said if I could hire a gardener. 30% said if I could hire a personal trainer, then I would feel successful. And almost all said if I could just get a car or home upgrade, I'd feel successful. Now many of us have been being told our whole lives, you are a very important person. You are top shelf the problem is, if everyone's a VIP, there's only one shelf. But what happens is our feelings of success, our feelings of productivity, don't always match reality. 92% of people who set New Year's goals never achieve them. One writer said this, no one is self-aware. Some think they are great when their work is terrible. We are told being happy is more important than being successful. So in a recent poll, only 33% of Americans say they're happy. A third of the population would say, I'm happy. 40% say they rarely engaged in hobbies or activities they enjoy. 75% say their voice is not heard. And yet... Out of that group, 72% say they feel very hopeful about the future. So we may not be happy, but we're optimistic. 
But our priorities get twisted in life and in the spiritual life. And, and we, many of us, feel spiritually unfruitful. You may deeply desire to have fruit be evidenced in your life, the fruit of the Spirit, and, and God bearing fruit, fruit that remains through your life, and you cultivate, and you plant seeds, and you pray for growth, and, and you, you seem to see no fruit for all your efforts. And doubt begins to sting you, and you think, am I doing enough? Do I have enough faith? And discouragement sets into your heart and you think, what am I missing? And the devil accuses you. You're not good enough. God isn't big enough or strong enough. You might even cling to this kind of a statement. Well, God didn't call me to be fruitful. He called me to be faithful. The problem is, he called you to be fruitful and faithful. You're to trust Jesus and do what you're called to do and be faithful to your calling and God will make you fruitful. Because God produces the fruit. We're to abide in Christ, John 15, connected with the vine, Jesus. We, we plant, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, we plant, we water, God gives the growth. God gets the glory for the fruit. We like to take the glory for the fruit. And what we fail to realize is there's more than one kind of fruit. It seems like we all have this idea in our heads and it's all different. And it's like, well, if, if this kind of fruit came out in my life, uh, then I would be a successful Christian. And we always pick the thing we want. Maybe God's growing something else in your heart and wants to grow it out through your life. And some fruit is visible. You know, people just lead tons of people to Christ. That's visible fruit. Or they just start all kinds of Bible studies and prayer meetings and all that, and that's visible fruit. But the Spirit produces all kinds of fruit. And it isn't always easily seen or visible. And yet it still exists. It's like Philippians 1.11, that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, the new life of the Spirit, the new life because of the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is in the life of every believer. And what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit leads us to repentance. The Holy Spirit unites us with Christ through new birth. The Holy Spirit endows us with gifts with which to serve. The Holy Spirit empowers us to follow Christ. The Holy Spirit enables our witness for the gospel. I can't preach without the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 4 says, we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We take that as an admonition. It's not. It is a statement of fact that applies to all believers. Walk means your lifestyle, the habits of living and thinking that characterize your life in Christ. Every true believer is indwelt by the spirit of God. All who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Every Christian is going to show the fruit God produces in their life. 
Galatians 5, we read that earlier today. Because in Christ, if you're a Christian, in Christ you have new life. God's life is in your soul. It's not going to be taken out of your soul. However you feel. And God is at work in you to perfect you and conform you to Christ and, and use you for his glory. And he produces some obvious preoccupations in the lives of believers, in the hearts of believers. I'm going to share five of them with you by way of application right now. And I'll just say next week we're going to get into some other ones. But we're going to get into this more deeply when we get into chapters 12 to 16 in Romans because it's all the, you know, the practical chapters, right? But it bears noting, I think, we're just getting into chapter 7, right? It's not all about doctrine. Doctrine that is solid should lead to living that is solid. That orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. <laughs> that solid doctrine must lead to sincere devotion. And sincere devotion without solid doctrine, you might go off the reservation. But you have solid doctrine without sincere devotion? I don't know what that is because the Bible, the Bible doesn't teach that. As you serve in the new way of the Spirit, you're joined to Christ, you're, you, you belong to Christ, you're spiritually married to Christ. And so you will, you will see some fruit. It might not be the one you keep thinking you hope you see, but the Holy Spirit will produce fruit in your heart and life. And it will do something else. A true Christian doesn't, doesn't just love Jesus, but they, uh, they, they interact appropriately with people. So you're gonna be preoccupied with Jesus and you're going to act appropriately with people if the Spirit of God is in your life, that you will be preoccupied with Jesus and it's going to inspire some ground level, rubber meets the road, Christian life blessing other people's stuff. Five preoccupations, I'll give them to you now. I think they become very evident. The Spirit testifies of Christ. The Spirit leads you to worship God in Christ. And the first thing I will mention is this. It's, it's got to be so obvious what, you're married to Christ now spiritually? Then first, you are going to love Jesus. You're going to love Jesus. That he is your primary love, that you want to worship him, that you have died to sin, that you've been delivered from the law, and, and you now have a new desire to please God. It's like those of you that are married, you ought to desire to love your spouse actively. So we belong to Christ. We, we serve him now from devotion, not obligation. 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's why we love God. That's why we can say we love you, Jesus. And, and loving Jesus, that means you hate sin. Because you can't serve two masters and you can't love sin and Jesus at the same time. So you will avoid sin. You will actively reject sin. And, and when you sin, you're going to run to Jesus. 
A truly changed heart and life produces real heart change, and it's proven by life change. It's evidence in your attitude. It's evidence in your actions. So if you love Jesus, you're going to love other people. There's no way around that. You can't say, I love Jesus and hate people. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And the reason why we have to have that verse and so many others is because we have trouble loving one another. Romans 8, verse 28, the first time you see in Romans where it talks about loving God. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Go over to Romans 12, 9 and 10. Very practical. Here it is. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. My prayer is that God would give us hearts to love Jesus and people. You'll love Jesus. You'll be preoccupied with your love for Jesus. And secondly, you will honor Jesus. You will want to honor him. You, you will speak well of him. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. You want good fruit coming out in your life? Just give thanks to God's name. It's, it's the psalmist in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and, and don't forget any of his benefits. So maybe lovingly speak of Christ each day. Maybe, maybe honor Jesus. And if we honor Jesus, we'll look at Romans 12, verse 10. We will. We will outdo one another in showing honor. Like we're falling all over ourselves. We're, we're racing we're racing each other. We're, we're competing with each other to show one another honor and to speak well of one another. You love Jesus. You'll, you'll honor Jesus. And, and third, you'll serve Jesus because when your heart changes in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, you have a new freedom. Your prison has changed. You're a slave of God and, and you progressively grow in Christ and your whole perspective changes because now you're looking towards glory, you're looking towards eternal life, and everything gets reorganized around that. And when you're growing in grace, last week we gave out bookmarks on Mother's Day that you're taking in the word of God and you're talking it out with God and you're, you're even writing out your heart's desires to God and you're, you're working out your relationships and you're reaching out with the gospel and you're, you're looking out to meet needs and you're pressing on daily to know the Lord. You will serve Jesus. And if you serve Jesus, you'll serve others. You'll love him, you'll honor him, you'll serve him. And number four, you'll obey Jesus. You'll obey Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, 14, you're my friends if you do what I command you. You'll obey Jesus. And, and when you obey Jesus, you'll actually obey others appropriately. Romans 13, 1 let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So as long as they're not telling you to break the law or to dishonor God, you need to obey. That's tough for us, isn't it? 
You will love Jesus, you will honor Jesus, you will serve Jesus, you will obey Jesus. And the last point I'll make is, you will trust him. You will trust him with your life. You will trust him with your present, you will trust him with your future, and you will trust him with everything in between. You'll know that God's power is in you because you have the Holy Spirit in you. And you'll know that Jesus sustains you. And that will show itself. The trust for Jesus shows itself in what Jesus told us to do. He said, deny yourself. It will, it will show itself in the fruit of ongoing self-denial. Here's some tough medicine I need to apply daily. In fact, I needed to apply it yesterday because I was having a, a rotten attitude about some things. Every moment we spend sulking, plotting, worrying, making cases against others, not forgiving, resenting, gossiping, slandering, being divisive, spreading strife, not repenting, not reconciling, holding things against others, or sinning in any other way is a moment we steal from the service of the gospel of Christ. Here's what John Owen said about trusting Jesus. He says, we, were, we are commanded to wash ourselves, to cleanse ourselves from sins, to purge ourselves from all iniquities, and yet to imagine that we can do these things by our own efforts is to trample on the cross and grace of Jesus Christ. Whatever God works in us by his grace, he commands us to do as our duty, and he works all in us and by us. The duties God requires of us are not in proportion to the strength we possess in ourselves. They are proportional to the resources available to us in Christ. You will love Jesus. You will honor Jesus. You will serve Jesus. You will obey Jesus. You will trust Jesus. Relying upon the Spirit of God who caused you to die to the law so that you belong to Christ so that you can now serve God. And I want you to go on your way today knowing that, thinking about that, and trusting God for that, and, and believing that God joins you to Christ so that your life would bear fruit for him. And Lord, we thank you that believers belong to you. Jesus, you're our master, you, you're our Lord, and, and you bear fruit through our, our life for your glory. Thank you, Lord, that you will grow fruit through the hearts and lives of every person who has died with Christ and belongs to Christ and is freed from the law and is married to Christ, and thank you that we then are enabled to bear good fruit as we serve in the new way of your spirit. Let me pray in Jesus' name, amen.